I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if you like this podcast, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, Dan is talking with Michelle Bayo, CEO and founder of Finnovator. Finnovator is a payments and future of finance consultancy. Today, Dan and Michelle have an in-depth conversation on open banking and discuss where consumers now stand on the issue of who owns their data and who should, where open banking is going, which parties are moving it forward, and which are holding it back. Which diversity and inclusion implications are part of this conversation? Stay tuned for a deep dive into open banking. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata, the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. Michelle, welcome back to Commerce Code. It's great to have you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Where are you uh, joining us from today? Very happy to be back. I'm joining from Toronto, Canada. Let me just kind of frame it a bit, and I'll note for listeners, Michelle's been on Commerce Code before, so this was uh, episode 103, and we were talking about fintech innovation, open banking, kind of continuing that conversation today in a way, and kind of taking it in the, in the ethical, philosophical direction, but in a way that I think is practical and, and kind of consequential, because, you know, where everybody's dealing every day with companies who are making decisions about data and what to do with it and what we can do with it, what we should do with it. So we're talking today about, do we have a human data right? And so Michelle, you and I were talking a while ago about the idea of a human data right and where we're kind of headed. But I think I want to start by painting a picture because we're coming at it from the perspective of, of kind of the financial industry and some of the data that's there, which I think is an area that's really consequential. And, you know, you do all this work as a consultant to kind of envision the future, understand it, and to help people in the industry kind of see where things are are headed. And so I'd love to start by just getting your your view, your angle on kind of the future of consumer finance. So if I'm a typical consumer, say like five years from now, I'm young, I'm open to using sort of different innovations, different platforms, things could be really different for me in terms of that experience than they would be today or that they would have been certainly for my parents. So what do you think is kind of the most consequential difference as we move forward for the next, say, five years for a typical, you know, 25, 30 year old in terms of how consumer finance works? I think it's such a good question because it's moving so quickly. The pandemic brought us 10 years faster into digitization of financial services. And I think as a 25-year-old years from now, hopefully, you know, you won't have to walk into a branch. Right now, I think with cross-border for wires, that's still a thing. But looking at the future, this is fully digitized financial services, onboarding in a seamless way, moving away from screen scraping, which is currently how a lot of the onboarding infrastructure is working, which is unsafe and just not great practice of putting in your password to what looks like your bank account to easily sign into some other service. I don't think the consumers understand what that means or what they're doing. They just want the convenience aspect of all of that. 
but with the U.S. moving to a consumer data right based on discussions announced at Money 2020 in 2022 in October in Vegas with a discussion of moving to a consumer data right in 2024, that could truly lead to open banking, open finance, and a clear, clean pipe for the banks and others that are accredited to work together so that you don't have to put your password in to access another service. You can sign in through open banking and validate that you are who you say you are and get access to the service you're looking for without compromising yourself, your password, and your safety. And I will say for what it's worth, and I think this matters, signing in through things that are kind of transparently rigged to work, it doesn't work very well either, right? I mean, it's not like it works great in terms of where we should be. So there's also that, right? The opportunity here is in part making it better, even aside from some of the security and some of the privacy stuff. Yeah, it's meant to make it seamless, which many people call embedded finance. And embedded finance is making a fast-paced move in the U.S. But to get true embedded finance, you need seamless infrastructure to access the data safely with consent on record, which to me is open banking, open finance. What's the best thing about this for the consumer? Again, we're kind of imagining a few years down the road and things are better than they are now. What do you think is the best thing about this for the consumer? Yeah, I think this is going to reduce fraud. I think this will hopefully help reduce the amount of times that mostly Americans have this challenge of being their identity stolen. And I think if you have a really good framework of you are who you say you are, and this is how you authenticate, it's going to change the game in the fraudster's master plan, because it's going to truly authenticate the human and the actions they're looking to facilitate. And it's going to make it much harder for the bad actors to play within the system. So I, I think it could be a better future in the sense of, of having that accessibility and it just needs the right frameworks to who owns the data and how is that data treated and when is that data deleted? Because right now there's no data deletion policy. But if you look at open banking in the UK, many of those infrastructure sets either say you can have these four pieces of data to sign me into your ecosystem, but after three months, you have to delete it because I'm now in your ecosystem. You no longer need that data set, or I'm going to re-authenticate every year to say I still want to be with this service. But it, it's giving the consumer the power to be in charge in very simplistic ways. It's not like there's going to be these overarching rules that just make less data having to be stored. If less data is stored, less data can be stolen. As you say that, and, and this is phrasing it in maybe a bigger way, but one of the more consequential things it seems to me, just listening to you say it, is an easily acted upon right to be forgotten, if you will, could really clean up a lot of stuff that we just take for granted that, that we don't think about. The idea we just take for granted that you got no control over that, but the idea that we would be able to control who does and doesn't have our personal information because it's simply never been possible before we haven't thought about it. But that could actually be a pretty consequential improvement in the way the world works. Yeah, I think this will help create new innovation that could probably accelerate what you're speaking of. Like if we wanted to utilize a service for a certain period of time, why should they get to keep our data forever? I think there's probably implications beyond it, too, that we haven't really thought about a lot. Your point about security is a great one. And, uh, you know, it's attacks, uh, weirdly, and I, I, I won't attempt to explain it because I'll get it wrong, but weirdly, filing tax returns on behalf of somebody else, you know, fraudulently is a very common thing in the U.S. I don't know if this happens elsewhere. And so uh, for years now, I've had like this little rider on my, with the IRS, where the IRS knows that someone else has tried to impersonate me in the past. But anyway, it, it occurs to me, too, that when you get the uh, system improving over the next few 
few years that that could eventually work its way into things like tax collection and filing and all of that. And there'll be a whole fight over that, what that means for people. But it could be, you know, an improvement because that, that system's not the best. The other thing I guess I'd think about is, uh, another way of asking this question, of what's the opportunity cost if we don't move effectively, I guess, into the next stage, right? Where people have better control over their data. Because there's always forces, whether it's industry or just whatever, laziness or consumers not that interested or we just don't have great interfaces. What's the opportunity cost? What, what happens if we don't make these changes? I'm just going to answer your tax question first, because I think it's a really important, valid use case, actually, in open banking, open finance. The UK actually did an incredible example of this. So the OBIE, which was the implementation body of open banking in the UK, one of their department heads actually worked really closely with the government and connected them to a fintech and started to enable pay with bank for their tax infrastructure. So what that did was like in any system, if you're doing wires or even paying with credit card, you could put in the wrong digit, right? And therefore that payment gets lost. Either you put in the wrong digit on the account you're paying for your taxes, or you put in the wrong digit of your bank account. and It doesn't fully complete. And what this was able to do from an open banking standpoint is in one department for tax payments, they were able to clean up and have direct instantaneous settlement for tax payments, for small businesses, for personal payments, and the government got their money faster. And the consumer knew that it was it was clean and done for their business, for their personal. So just on the intake process alone, the uptake was was massive. They've now moved it into 13 or 14 other government departments. And that's just a choice. So when you go on to the government CRA or whatever IRS account in the future, imagine having a pay with bank button versus just pay with credit card or send payment. It makes the process of the payment cleaner. And then you could take that on the intake and use open banking to authenticate who you are so that a bad actor can't authenticate themselves to complete your taxes and try and change the address, I guess, to get your tax payment. You know, on open banking, and the more I think about it, and I think I'm, I'm starting to get it, maybe is, you know, yes, it's we, we use the term open banking, but really it's kind of a, a placeholder for a bigger concept. Um, you could say open finance, but I think really it's consumer ownership and control of their data. I think we see companies of all different kinds just through Digital Commerce Alliance using, you know, a wider range, a more diverse range of information in order to do the work that they do. And so it's not necessarily what you'd regard as financial information. And then the question is, how is that permissioned and owned? And so, I, you know, I'd be interested to just get your angle on what are some examples of personal data that are just going to be more easily and more clearly controlled by the consumer five years from now than, than they are now? And what's really driving it? Because, I mean, it can be driven by regulation or it can be just driven by opportunity, by companies saying, hey, like, we can ask the consumer to permission certain things. It's going to be good for them. They're going to want to do it because they'll get something in return. I mean, there's that stuff, too. I'm just curious, you know, what are some examples and what do you think is going to cause that to really move? You know, I think there's been a lot of discussion on consumer and open banking, but I think the real win is is SMEs and open banking, open finance, open data. In Canada, we have 2 million business owners, small to medium-sized business owners. I think in the US, you guys are 10x. So let's picture 20 million business owners trying to attempt to close their books every month. And to close their books every month, they most likely use an aggregator, some type of screen scraping because they need their cell phone bill, their internet bill all of their utilities, all of their expenses, their phone apps that they're now using for some of their receipts and so on. 
But if they're using screen scraping, that's exposing their password to, let's say, 15 different platforms so that they can close their books every month. If they're like me and they know that that's a, a risk, then they're downloading a PDF of all of these bills and infrastructure to upload it into their accounting system. How many hours are small business owners spending on accounting with these broken infrastructure sets that if there was a clean API that they could sign up for, that they wouldn't have to breach their agreement and pass over their password without knowing that they could close their books faster, that they could spend more time on innovation, on hiring more people, on building a new product. Just the unlock of time and mind space that the future of finance could bring through open data is endless, in my opinion. What you've just described, I think, is the way that big picture disruption in markets really happens. And, and what I mean is we're talking SMEs because that's the most immediate pressing you know, need for the solution. It's at the, if you will, the bottom of the market, right? And so if you're talking about a Fortune you know, 100 company, you'd say, well, you know, they've got an accounting department and they've got all this specialized software and whatever, and so they don't need this stuff. But the way disruption works is that you build it for the customer that needs a solution that is kind of ready to hand and not that expensive and whatever. But those things get better. They just get better. And it won't be long you know, before the Fortune 100 company says, wait a second, why are we doing all the complicated stuff? Why don't we just do that? And I think your point about the enormous amount of business owner time that's chewed up monthly in that kind of activity is absolutely right. But, and I would just add to that, that kind of time shouldn't be chewed up in big companies either, but we're going to, it's, we're probably some significant number of years away from when it works its way up market. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's going to have to prove itself with the small to medium sized businesses or the larger companies to see the light of opportunity that they could still have their accounting staff, but have them work on more complex, how to save on cross border or FX or other challenges. But this should just be seamless and something we don't have to worry about because I'm a business owner. I know how much time I spend on accounting. I'm going to say it's probably 10 hours a month. You times that by 20 million business owners. That's, you know, even if it's not the CEO themselves, small companies, they're still going to have to look at it to close it. So I, I think there's a, a cleaner way that we could do this. And if we could save their time, knowing how North America is innovators, that this, this could unlock something bigger. And then I think to your other point, what's the opportunity or the lost opportunity if North America doesn't move there faster? When I look at the globe and I look at the other countries who've embedded open banking, open finance, open data, Australia, for example, the UK, Brazil, they have all experienced mass VC dollars and a mass growth of fintech ecosystem, as well as their banks are now future-proofed. Because to be in an open banking ecosystem, they've had to go cloud-based, they've had to ingest APIs, they've had to create teams who understand fintechs, who can embed fintechs, not only into the pipe so that they can work with them, but some of them have obviously partnered with these fintechs to help their customers with new services. So I would say these countries have modernized their financial ecosystem faster than North America. And I, I think it's to our own detriment that neither Canada nor the US is live with an open banking or open finance ecosystem when the UK is seven years in, Australia is five years in, and Brazil decided on a whim in the midst of the pandemic that they wanted to launch open banking in 2020 and facilitated it in one year and then moved to open finance the year after. And I'm sure is on a path to moving to open data. 
That's fascinating. I, you know, I think of this kind of stuff as core, even though it's invisible, <laughs> it's infrastructure, right? Rules, rules are a form of infrastructure. So I, I wanted to, to come back to this kind of idea about uh, consumer data rights, um, human data rights, and where you think it kind of goes, right? So, and you, and you actually just casually laid out that sequence, you know, open banking, open finance, open data. And is it that last thing? And what is that last stage of what does it really mean to own your data? And is that what it is to have a human data right, is to have full control over your information? You know, I lived in Australia in 2002, and their social order is still a little 1950s, I'd have to say. And it was really difficult to try and get a bank account, even though I had a work visa, and their systems were a little older. I was just so impressed that they were the first country in the world to come up with the concept of a consumer data right, write it into policy, and push it into market in June of 2020, they did not move the mark of their date, even though the pandemic hit them just as hard as everywhere else. In June of that year, they launched open banking and they continued down their structured path from open banking to open finance, to open telco, to open energy, to open data. So they actually have created the framework towards a human data right in my mind, because once you give the consumer the right to their data across multiple platforms, take it out of just the banks and think of, I want to be able to own my data in my wealth platform. I want to own my data in my energy relationships. I want to own my data in my telco relationships. I come from telco. I remember the day, like this is something that consumers will remember. I don't know in the US, I'm sure that it was the same as Canada, but in 1999, I was in telco selling three-year plans to a phone to a service provider. You could not leave that telco with that phone. You could not leave that telco with that phone number, even though that phone number was your identity. And it took until 2005, I think in Canada, for you to have number portability so that you would be able to leave and own that number and be able to take it with you you're not holding the number physically yourself because you're not a technologist, but you're able to own it and dictate where it goes. You've decided to move from one provider to the next provider. They had to create a backend that was safe and secure to move that phone number and your data over to that new provider that you've chosen. And now you're able to utilize that number. So I think it's just such a great example of you owning your data, but not actually having to store your data. You're just getting to dictate where it lives and who you trust and who you want to work with as a provider, whether that be in energy or telco or financial services. The power is within the consumer's hands because they get to tell the provider where they want to go with that data and what safe third-party provider can they work with in the ecosystem. I mean, I like the telco example and the number portability. You know, the world's changed so much in the last, it's exhausting. And so that's a great example because you kind of go, okay, when is it ever in the interest of an incumbent, you know, cell phone provider to want to allow that portability? But here, I think, I hope, in the finance space, and there's probably examples in every other industry, the potential advantage is to say, look, allowing that kind of consumer ownership can let us enrich the consumer experience and compete to keep them by providing better stuff through fintechs, neobanks, or whatever, and so that they'll be simply happier with the service we provide and more likely to stick with us big old bank because they've permissioned the data to be used in, in a better way. Is that what gets the incumbent providers on board? Because the, the cynic in me says, look, if the biggest institutions in the economy don't want this to happen, I think it's not going to happen. And so I, I just wonder how you react to that whole story and statement. 
I've been looking at open banking since about 2017, and I joined the Open Banking Initiative Canada as a board member in 2020 in August and just became the interim president and changed the name this August to the Open Finance Network. So I've studied a lot of what's happening globally. We wrote a 99-page manifesto on what was happening globally in open banking in March of 2021. So I've seen a lot of markets. And I just did a chart of the top seven, Commonwealth, as well as G7. And if you look at all the players that are moving towards an open banking, open finance, open data ecosystem, they've all regulated it. They've all mandated it to be enabled. The UK did it in 2017 by enabling PSD2. They're now moving to PSD3, which is open finance. Australia did it in 2020 by mandating a consumer data right and mandating participation across the board. Brazil did it through their own regulation. So when you look at it, the incumbents may not want to facilitate the move to open banking, but when forced into the play of having to be a part of this ecosystem, When you look at the UK, you look at Australia, you look at Brazil, Singapore is now there. I think Saudi Arabia has now announced, Jordan has now announced an open finance network. All of them have had to modernize their bank to ingest, as I said, you know, cloud-based API infrastructure sets. None of these banks have fallen off the top 100 list, especially the, the CMA9 big UK banks. And yes, they had to pay for the ecosystem. And, and yeah, they were kind of forced into it. But many of them have found new revenue streams and have grown their financial status and their deposits because they found other ways to work with fintechs. So it's kind of forcing the banks into the future of finance. Like if we think everything's hunky-dory, we just stay with our current system. I think the challenge is the power and the intelligence and the growth that are happening in other markets for other banks. If we get to more of a global banking ecosystem, they have mass advantage of understanding, of being modern, of being agile. So I hope for a mandate to open banking, open finance for North America so that we push ourselves into that category of being the future of finance. I really think there's a tipping point out there at which time more mature banking customers, people in their 40s and 50s and and older, start to think to themselves essentially for the first time, hey, um, there are offerings, conveniences, et cetera, that are out there that we could be getting. And and the only reason we've stayed, we, the family or whatever, have stayed with a certain bank for, for so long is because it's just so hard to change. But once you have a bit of open banking infrastructure and then some offerings coming out from other players, you'll start to see some movement. I mean, at that point, I assume even the sleepiest players will see that they have to compete by offering you know, competitive offerings, things that provide convenience and create value, or they're going to go the way of the dodo bird. So, you know, I, I don't know when that happens. I mean, that kind of stuff in, a, in an industry as traditional as banking, it's extremely difficult to suggest what the timeline is on that. But it seems to me now the writing's on the wall that that, that that will happen. And you see some big players, I think, in the banking sector that are starting to assemble the ability to make those competitive offers to draw consumers toward them. Uh, I think that's going to be hugely consequential. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and I also want to say for the banks, this is not just a compliance check. Like once they enable an open banking ecosystem, there's faster opportunities to help their customers by partnering with a fintech that's already accredited to get to the subset of the market that they might not get to 
through a partnership faster than they may have in the current ecosystem, as well as I think the consumer is going to just diversify. They they might not leave their bank. They might just use another provider for two of the services. So the bank is going to have to compete for the full pie. But I think the consumer is going to have a better financial future because they'll have more competitive products that are more tailored to their needs. And they'll actually even be able to get a dashboard. If you look at the UK, they already have these of you know, you would be able to optimize your wealth if you moved an aspect of it to potentially one of these two or three providers. And because there is open banking, you can share four pieces of data that would then give you an even more customized product and potentially even at a cheaper rate because we're not all then having to fit into product sets. We actually, they end up having more products that are more customized because they understand the customer better and therefore they can service them better. So there's mass advantage in innovation, not just for the fintechs, but also for the incumbent banks who already sit with a customer base and could potentially steal customers from another big bank that they couldn't have before. So I want to shift gears here at the end because uh, to a topic that you and I've talked about a little bit, which is the diversity and inclusion and just kind of social matters, I guess. And ownership of data, like what, you know, because I think there are real implications potentially, surely, ones that we haven't thought of yet, again, of people really owning their information. But you've got thoughts, I know, on sort of diversity and inclusion in this context. I'm curious, what do you think is impacted or what happens differently on social questions if we take human data rights or consumer data rights seriously? Yeah, I think it's inclusivity. I, I think at the end of the day, we're meant to try and fit in a box to work with a lot of providers because they don't have a lot of options or choices. And I think when they try and bring people into the ecosystem, they've got an algorithm and that algorithm might have bias. When you add diversity first to your board and to your executive team, you build more diverse products. Therefore, you catch more potential customers because you're, you're hitting different demographics by offering different product sets and thinking outside of the box. So I think diversity is an opportunity for mass growth. And when we look to the future where data is more accessible, but also more controlled, you can help more of these different groups. Like just looking at female business owners, they're only getting 2% of the VC dollars and they really don't get access to a lot of loans at the same time, treated differently. I think when you start to have more data and it's not based on, let's say, the personal experience or dealing with someone in branch, there's more to a file that can show you the ability for a female business owner to have a loan because female business owners actually have, I think it's 13% higher EBITDA just based on the fact of how they run their business. So they're, they're really conscious of the dollars in, dollars out play and are really stable business owners. So I, I think this is an opportunity that with more data, we can service more people in a less biased way. Agreed. I, I will throw out a, a hypothesis. The more data you have access to and the more you're able to apply mass computing power to it, you know, in a positive and a constructive way, segments matter a lot less because we're not dealing with, hey, this person is a female between the ages of 25 and 35, lives in Toronto, blah, blah, blah. We're just dealing with, well, it's but it's just Michelle. Like we've got this data, we know what her preferences are, this, that, and the other thing. And so it's less of a segment thing. 
uh, and more of the ability to tailor to each person. And, and I will say that that's, if you do it right, it's sort of the, the ultimate way of respecting the dignity of another person or the interacting with them as a person, right? To say, well, I'm not going to assume anything about you based on some demographic thing, but just kind of interact on the basis of who you are and what you want in life and what you value and all that. And that that's the, I mean, that's a little bit down the road, but it feels so much closer now, I guess, as we consider all these things. Yeah, I think you can look to Amazon for that exact experience set, right? They they have the data of what you bought, why you bought it to some degree, what you like, what you return, and they personally work with you and what they offer you and, and what shows up to what you might be interested in. I think we're just so used to that instantaneous, more personalized experience, but it's definitely not coming out of banking just yet. In online shopping, metadata has enabled personalized offers and innovation for 10, 15, 20 years now. It's like the internet hasn't touched payments yet and personalized banking. So I I think this is the revolution and it needs consumer data rights, human data rights, and the right to delete your data, the right to only share aspects of the data you need to facilitate the product that best serves you and is most personalized to you. This all, I just think that culture matters so much and this all will work when everyone thinks it works. In other words, when people believe that they have a right to their data, it'll all happen. So then the question is, well, when are they going to do that? What will cause people to really believe that this is the deal? People have asked, you know, the biggest challenge in open banking is getting the consumer to understand open banking. I think the challenge with open banking is the word open banking, because many people think it means the opposite of security and safety, and that their data is just open to anybody. It should be called secure banking, secure finance, and secure data. But I I think you could see it in a telco. I think people feel like they have choice, whether they move or not from one telco to the other. They know if they get really upset due to something that's happened in the market, they could get up and leave tomorrow. It might take them a, a good couple hours in some hassle to go change to another provider, but they get to keep their number. So no one knows that they had to make that change. So the question is, is how do we make them feel that in that same respect, they own their banking data? So if I'm going to move from one big American bank to another big American bank, it's not like I'm walking in the door for the first time and they get to meet me. They check my KYC. They know who I am because they checked a record, but they have no idea what I do, how much is coming in a month, what I've done for 20 years. They, they just have literal no grasp. I'm starting fresh in an open banking ecosystem. I could port in, let's say, if I so chose 12 months worth of data so that they could get to know me and hand me the right product sets. So it's not so much getting consumers to understand open banking. It's getting them to understand just like their cell phone number they own their banking data. It's not about them holding it themselves and trying to keep it safe. It's about them being able to port it from wherever they are to wherever they want to go. That's a good place to to end. And I'm still thinking about it. I like the phone number portability example, the more I come back to it. But I still think it's a great example in a way of wrapping our heads around it. And I love the way that you've been able to lay it out, Michelle. So great conversation today and, and grateful for your time, your thoughts. Thank you, Dan. It was such a pleasure. Looking forward to coming back. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com.
For more on open banking's potential to reshape the industry's competitive landscape and the consumer's experience, sign up for DCA's April Summit. Join fellow members on Tuesday, April 11th in San Francisco and learn about the next generation of digital offers and payments. Visit www.digcomall.org to register. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.